BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman. Today, I'm answering your listener questions you sent me on DM on Instagram that asked about social media and smartphones and what in the world to do. And I thought this would be a great episode to enlist Dr. Devorah Heitner, who wrote ScreenWise, which is a realistic and optimistic perspective on how to thoughtfully guide kids in the digital age. And she has an upcoming book called Growing Up in Public. It's the definitive book on helping kids navigate growing up in a world where nearly every moment of their lives is shared and compared. That's coming out in the fall. She's going to be back to talk about this. But I thought, given that right now my Apple Premium podcast season is all about tech and social media and smartphones and tablets and how we're navigating this, and you can get to that going to Apple Podcasts. And just go to Raising Good Humans and sign up for my premium subscription. It's only $2.99 a month. But this is extra because I'm answering the exact questions you had. And of course, if you have a question, chances are someone else has that same question. So this is really relatable and really important. And Dr. Heitner is an expert in media and technology and society. That's her entire focus. So she really is a wealth of knowledge and she offers great strategies for mentoring our kids in this hyper-connected world. So we're going to just dive right into your questions. So I asked on my Instagram, what are your social media concerns? And so, of course, I thought it would be such a gift for everybody to have you help answer these questions. So let's just go through them. And then as we're going through them, we can get into sort of the developmental conversations that they might bring up. Because if one person has a question, chances are it's on many people's minds. So the first question I got was, what can I say to my child when they keep saying to me, but I'm the only one who doesn't have it? Well, I think you can get curious about how the friends are using the thing your kid doesn't have, whether it's a device like a phone or a watch, whether it's an app and how it's going for those kids. You can also, if you're friends with the parents and if your kid is, you know, in the single digit ages, you probably know some of their, you know, the parents of these other kids, you could ask them like, how's it going? Like, what do you wish you knew before you got them that watch that, you know, you can text your kid on, or what do you wish you knew before you greenlit this app? And just think about how it's going. 
if there's a communication app where a lot of the friends and peers are using it to make plans, one compromise if you really don't feel like your child is is ready for the app and and that could be a really good call to make. Maybe you could put the app on your phone so that the friends could at least reach out about plans so that your kid isn't getting excluded from, you know, meeting up to go to the beach or meeting up to go to the park, that kind of thing. And let the parents of especially the closer friends know like, hey, we're we're holding off on Snapchat or we're not green lighting, you know, texting yet on a personal device because the kids are still for me, you know, we're not there yet. And and even though it can feel hard to talk about these choices with other adults, especially when they're different, right? Because there's so much divergence in what people are doing right now with kids in tech. And it can feel like real loaded to even bring it up with parent peers. I think it's really helpful. And and people would like to know. And they can say, okay, well, we'll make sure to text you then if we're all going to the park, that kind of thing. And especially again for younger kids, I think that's a good way to go. If your child is older. I would think about what are your reasons for holding off on the app and is it something you would be okay with them using again on your device? Would you be okay with them having limited access to it? If it's a hard no, then I would think about, you know, having them also giving them some language that they can communicate directly to their friends. But I do think as kids get older, what we also don't want to do is drive them underground. We don't want them to sneak and get the app on their own. I would rather they have the app and you know they have the app and they're using it in a way that's supported and mentored by you and guided versus, you know, completely on their own. So I think as kids get older, I would listen to them if they're saying, hey, everyone else is direct messaging on WhatsApp. I don't have WhatsApp. It's going to be a challenge or whatever. And think about, is there a way that I could let my kid have some guided access to this versus just saying no? So I think it really depends on the age and the situation. You know, I certainly think if, you know, all the kids in third grade are getting Snapchat and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's supposed to be 13 and up, you know, you're not wrong. And I think encouraging to having a little bit of a chat with other parents and saying, hey, can we all communicate another way might work, right? So it really depends on the age. Whereas in eighth grade, you know, you're not going to reach out to the other parents to encourage their kids to communicate another way. My my just finished eighth grade kid, I don't even know the parents of all the friends. We moved to a new district two years ago during a pandemic. There's no school directory. So I literally could not do what I just advised. But, you know, when my son was in elementary school, I could have done that. You mentioned two things that I just want to highlight. One is the loaded nature of these conversations, even amongst adults, and how judgmental on both sides. It's like almost like, you know, when you have young children and babies and people are talking about breastfeeding or sleep training, the folks who are holding off have one very strong view. The folks who are not holding off have another strong view or might be ashamed of what they've done or might be like, hey, get with the program and in the modern world, like who knows, but the loaded nature of the conversations makes it hard to even say to your good friends, hey, we're holding off or hey, why are you holding off or whatever it is. So I just, I I think it's nice to let us all know we're not imagining it, that it is loaded and that it's interesting for our kids to even see like, these are hard conversations to have because they're talking about certain things that are really personal to each family and each individual. One thing that I think can help is if we go with an attitude of just curiosity, like, oh, well, we're thinking about that in the next couple of years. What are some things you wish you knew before you said yes to Roblox on a public server, before you said yes to group texting, before you said yes to Minecraft, before you got a phone? And especially if you are thinking about maybe parents of a kid who's a little older than your oldest kid, that can 
you know, you can genuinely go to someone with just that curiosity of like, hey, we're thinking about this too. What what do you wish you knew? And, th- and then it feels less maybe loaded. And But I, I also think people are, we're at a cultural turn now where there's a lo- so much conversation around this that I think we can go to other parents and our kids are better off if we take that village approach sometimes, not necessarily a united front. I think a lot of parents wish everyone would just do the same thing. I don't think that's happening. But if we can just have that conversation, I think the kids are better off. You also mentioned the idea of meeting kids enough where their reality is so that we're not promoting kind of hidden and sneaky behaviors. And I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Absolutely. I think if kids really feel like not only are they just like missing out on a fun thing that other kids are doing, but that everything is happening in a place and they can't even see that place, then it's going to sound like the promised land. And I can tell you like the fifth grade group text is not the promised land. It's a toxic stew that your kid probably won't like, but your kid's going to want to see that for him or herself, even again, if maybe you're holding off on a phone. And so you you might want to consider an inconvenient solution, which would be like, you get some access on your device to that group text or whatever it is that your kid feels so, so worried about. Because it may be that if they see it, they'll be like, oh yeah, this is, <laughs> you know, there's like a chance that that will happen. And it's also good for you to kind of, at that point, like that's not covert spying. That's, you know, you openly sharing with your kid that you're you're looking at this with them. So for in those early years, I think it's important to just be in the conversation at all times. And, and yeah, you, you certainly don't want to drive a high schooler or a middle schooler underground. If they can't communicate with their friends independently at all in middle school to make plans or in high school, then that's a, that is a big problem. That would be like growing up in your house without a home phone line. Like if you're old like me and there was like a phone on the wall, it would be like you were the family that didn't have a phone on the wall. If your kid can't text by the end of middle school. That's the equivalent. So unless you are willing to be that that family and say like, okay, you can only reach my kid by carrier pigeon, you have to think about something, right? Because they will not be able to make plans or be in a group project or do anything. And the school is going to give them a device too. And they're going to end up using the school device and the school communication or the school Google Hangouts in ways that are social and maybe unexpected. And they could even get in trouble sometimes if they lean too heavily into those school, you know, learning management systems for their social life. So you kind of don't want that. Some kids are more aware of that. My own kid is very aware of not using the school stuff for his personal, but other kids are, I would say, more oblivious to that distinction. They don't think about like, oh, if I use the school server to communicate with my friends and share memes with my friends, you know, the IT dude at school can see all that. Okay. Every parent knows how daunting food allergies can be. So I really love Mission Mighty Me. It's a line of proactive puffs that make it simple to include peanuts and other common food allergies in infant diets, as pediatric guidelines are now recommending. This is such an innovative food company. They're on a mission to help end food allergies as an epidemic. And they've created these convenient, simple, tasty, and nutritious science-backed snacks to help empower parents and make it easy for early allergen intro. The learning about peanut allergy study, the LEAP study, that was led by Mission Mighty Me co-founder, Dr. Gideon Lack, found that regularly feeding peanut-containing foods to babies starting as early as 4 to 11 months until age 5 reduces their likelihood of developing a peanut allergy by more than 
80%. That is so empowering. These puffs and snacks contain no artificial ingredients, no natural flavors, or added sugar. Mission Mighty Me Puffs are a safe and delicious way to follow feeding recommendations for introducing common food allergens to babies and toddlers and keeping them in the diet regularly. Visit missionmightyme.com to learn more and use the code HUMANS for 20% off your first order. That's missionmightyme.com and use the code H-U-M-A-N-S at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. It's funny, I'm just looking at some of the questions that came in and two people just wrote, can I hide social media from my children forever? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might want to think about hiding your posts from them forever, especially if you either are young enough to have posted your sort of wild youth before you had kids. I think there's a whole generation now of people like my millennial siblings who are young enough to have social posts they may not want their kids to see. And then if you've been oversharenting and violating your kids' boundaries, you also may want to think about pulling down some of those posts before they go. I mean, the good thing is a lot of us olds are on the legacy social media like Facebook, where our kids may have no interest in going. But I think where <laughs> right now Instagram would be the place where like teenagers and you know moms and dads may overlap the most at the moment, right? Because we're also sure. most of us with kids maybe aren't on you know Snapchat or some of the you know TikTok as much. Some of us are, but right. So I think like Instagram would be that place where have you been posting pictures of your kids without their permission? There's going to be a a coming together moment of figuring that out. That's funny because I, I have always asked my kids permission, but it's not just asking their permission because if they're, I have a private account, which I know is not totally private ever, but, and on that account, I do have pictures of my kids. And when they were little, they're teenagers now, but when they were little, even though I asked them permission, now that they're teenagers, they don't necessarily, like, I was kind of asking permission, but like, I was their mother and they, of course, they were going to say yes. And it's quite different as they're looking back, they might change their minds. Like, I know mine were just like, absolutely not. Please take that down immediately. And so we do have to be very careful. And you mentioned Sharon Ting, and I think it, the the word is self-explanatory, but maybe Can you expand on that a little bit for those who have younger kids who are really just trying to, many people use social media just to let their friends know kind of updates on their kids and everything. Well, I think a lot of us are sharing our parenting experiences and especially in the last few years, we've been so isolated. It's been a way to find community and connect, but I think we have to really think about where our identities end and our kids begin. And that even as a, you know, you might feel like your baby or your three-year-old is very much an extension of you in some ways and their their meltdown is your meltdown, right? Because their hard day is your hard day. But that doesn't mean that they're going to want to see a video of that meltdown later. That would be really problematic. And even in the moment, I wouldn't distance myself from a child in distress by making a photograph or a video of that. Like I would never do that. But But even more violating would be to share it. So I think even talking though about the tough times we have with our kids, as much as it builds community, that's also their story. Any diagnosis your child has developmentally, cognitively, health-wise, that's their story. Any journey they're on with like gender or friendship or social anxiety or anything like that, like all of that is their story. And so I think we need to balance our needs for community as parents and think about a close trusted circle that could be a therapist, that could be your sibling, that could be your best friend. I'm not saying don't share these things. That could be your co-parent and a few other pe- people. 
I'm not saying don't share those things. I think we need to share those things. I also think if we want to be in an affinity group, like say you have a kid with dyslexia or gender nonconforming or a kid with anxiety, like join a group for those things, but maybe don't share your child's name or find ways to share anonymously. I think it's really important to get support around those kinds of issues. But if you're sharing on your public social media that's tied to you and your family, I'm very sensitive to this. I have a weird name, right? Like if you look up Devorah Heitner, it's not like there's these other Devorah Heitners out there you know, yeah. doing their thing. It's me. And so it's pretty easy to figure out who we are. And I think it's important for me to respect, you know, my, my kids' privacy, my partner's privacy, like all of that in what I share. And does that limit what I can share? Absolutely. It's hard for me because, I mean, he's the best content I've got, right? Like he's, you know, of course, like of course. I'm his mother. I'm like, you're amazing. You're so, you're so cool. He just got his black belt. I couldn't share a picture. And I was like, this would be really fun to share. It's just something for everyone to take into account because we do have a lot of expectations for our emerging adolescents and adolescents with regard to these decisions about sharing and social media, but we're planting seeds early and we're learning too. I mean, we got social media as grownups, so we're not particularly like it's sloppy. Consent is really important though, because it teaches them that they should be asking their friends before they share. And it teaches them that it's okay to say no. And that's huge as they get to the age where other peers are sharing them all the time. If they've had the experience at home where you asked and they said, you know, it was okay to say no, like they know, oh wait, I can say no. I can be like, don't post me to that YouTube channel. And that's a gift that we're giving them by giving them, you know, the ability and, and permission to say no. For sure. I mean, just imagine when you're desperately wanting to post something that was so precious or so wonderful or so, you know funny, whatever it is, if your child says no, and you don't honor that, you really are losing a beautiful opportunity. Quite a few people said what to do at other people's houses and exposure at other people's houses. Every family is in such a different place, right? As I said, it's such a loaded conversation, but I think it depends how concerned you are. Like if you think the family is really not able to supervise and your kid could see pornography or something super dangerous, super harmful, then I would think about that kid has a play date at your house, right? Like maybe you really are, are feel like it's not safe. If it's a, if it's a gray area situation, like I wouldn't buy that game for my kid, but I don't necessarily think that one or two hours playing that game is going to be the end of the world for them. I think we have a realistic attitude and the older our kids are, the more we can give them the reasons we want them to make a different choice. Cause of course they could play a different game. You know, you can go to the house that has the shooter game and you can still play the Zelda or, you know, the super Mario, right. You can make it, you can say, Oh, and, and your kid doesn't have to say, I'm not allowed to play shooters. They can just be like, I actually really want to practice super Mario. or I really want to, you know, play, you know, adopt me, which is a game on Roblox where you adopt, you know, unicorns and other pets. Like there's many alternatives to shooters. This is why games are of interest to so many more kids these days than they might've been when we were kids, right? Like I wasn't a gamer, but I think I would have been if there'd been games about adopting unicorns and decorating houses, I I might've appealed to me more than the Pac-Man and other stuff that was around. So Our our kids can understand what the rules are, but I do think as kids get older, it's more important for them to have experiences in other homes and setting their own boundaries. I mean, I think there's a tremendous loss with how many kids haven't been to one another's homes, haven't had sleepovers, and the developmental experience that's positive that pushes you to adapt to another family's ways of being. And that that experience is not something we want to lose to make sure our kid doesn't watch YouTube 
unless we know like, okay, this is, you know, maybe this is a situation where our kid has gone to that house before and seen pornography or, or if we know that our kid is extraordinarily vulnerable to peer pressure and won't be able to say no to the horror movie, but really will be very scarred by seeing that horror movie. That's a situation where we might be like, okay, you can have a sleep under and I'm picking you up at 11 or whatever it is. Um, and if you are hosting other kids, it's good to make sure you have some sense of what the boundaries are. And it's a great time to unplug kids, especially late at night if they stay over because kids get real disinhibited late at night, like adults who've been using substances almost. I mean, it really is analogous because and you've also got the sort of peer pressure factor. So a kid who would never do X or Y, like, oh, let's, you know, video call some FaceTime, some people who weren't invited to this sleepover and say mean stuff like might at two in the morning go with the flow and do that. And so that it's a good time to like not be on a connected device, ideally, and to encourage the kids to make a pizza or even do other screen-based activities that aren't interactive, like watch a movie. And I, I, it's really worth thinking about. You can absolutely talk to other parents about this stuff too. And if, if it's tough for you, you can put it on your kid a little bit. You know, for example, with the horror movie example, you could say, I know they're all going to watch a movie. My kid will never say anything because he doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of his other 11-year-old friends. But if it's a really scary movie, it might be tough for him. So, if you know, like, I know they're not going to watch The Muppet Show because they're cool sixth graders. But if you could, like, steer them toward, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark scary versus, I don't know, whatever, like, really scary, yeah. <laughs> that would be kind of right. great. In the very beginning of talking about this question, you mentioned you know, maybe if there is a situation where you just know there's going to be exposure, have them come to your house. I think what you're saying is just really important to highlight, which is we can't control other people. So we are better off either making the decision to arm our kids with the capacity to set their own boundaries, which is extra challenging during adolescence. And just because kids, I mean, that's a, that's a lifetime practice. And if you really feel like, okay, this is going to be a setting that's actually putting them in harm's way with regard to devices or whatever, have the kid come to your house. Because when people think they can control other families with absent of a food allergy or something, you can't say this kid can only eat X, Y, or Z, and they can't use a screen and they can't, you know, if you give a bunch of rules to another family, you can't expect them to adhere to your household rules. So if you're really concerned about it and you really feel like there is no flexibility there, have them over to your house. And also to your point, encouraging kids to experience how other families roll as long as they are not in harm's way. Like, did they get more sugar than you would have given them? Did they watch more TV than you would have liked? Sure. But they also learned how to participate in other households and kind of go with the flow. And so I think there are many benefits to learning about how little control we have and how if we really want to set the tone, that's then we're hosting. 100%. How do we monitor without being the Gestapo? <laughs> that's the wording <laughs> of the question that I received. But I think we understand what they're saying. How, you know, and and of course, I think this is a good opportunity to bring up the mentoring versus monitoring. But I also think we could talk about the developmental appropriateness of the scaffolding, which might include some monitoring, and then how that evolves over time as your children develop, both in skill and actually develop. A hundred percent. I think it's so important to let our kids know what we're looking for and at what ages and what they need to do to represent that they're ready for the next thing. Like if your kid is asking for the next thing, 
then we can talk about what we're observing, what the challenges are that we're working through. You know, if they're getting too mad when they play a game and they're having a hard time regulating, maybe that's not the time to add a new game. But if they want to add a new game, like a goal could be, I want to see you using your breathing exercises more when you get really mad when you play or you know, I want to see that you can make sure that you're not calling friends names when you're playing before we add either time on game or a new game, right? We're not like expanding this until you like get better at it. Just like we would expand your range of like biking places when we see that you're safely wearing your helmet and looking both ways, then we're like, okay, you can go yeah. further. So I think that's really important. And we want to communicate to kids because we want them to have hope, you know, because they really are so motivated to like the next experience often with with digital. And I would also be very transparent about any monitoring you're doing and ideally doing it with them. If you're going to look, if you've got an early texter who's like got a new phone and they're just learning about texting, I would say, let's sit down twice a week and look at some of your texts together. And that's not you spying on them and getting them later. It's also a situation where if you see it later, there's very little you can do and you're not talking to your kid. If your kid doesn't know you're seeing it, you're kind of painting yourself in one of those parenting quarters because how do you bring it up? Whereas if you're sitting down with them and they're saying, wow, we're really having a hard time making a plan. And you look at the texts and say, well, I see nobody's proposed a time here. <laughs> like, Try that. And you can actually give some useful advice that can really help. So there's a lot of great ways. And, and another thing you can do is propose theoreticals before your kids even on group text say like, what are you going to do if everyone gets on the group text and then, and then says, let's start a new group text without Devorah and Eliza. And you have to decide, like, am I going to go with with that? And how am I going to respond to that? Or what if people are all talking about a teacher in a mean way or crossing a line, talking about someone and, you know, talking about their body or using a slur or just being really mean. And those are things to talk about before your kid is even there. So then they can also come to you if they're in that situation and they want some support and help. And it can be more theoretical. The problem with monitoring covertly is they don't know you're there, so you can't help them as much. And you're getting it later, so you're catching them doing the wrong thing instead of teaching them to do the right thing like those theoreticals would. And you'll never see their cute little friends the same way when you see the kind of potty mouths elementary and middle schoolers can have on group text. And that can sort of harm your good feelings toward their friends in a way that, and even maybe make you see your own kid in a different light. And they're trying to front for their friends and be cool and be like, I'm a cool 12-year-old, I'm a cool 13-year-old, I'm a cool 11-year-old, whatever. And you might actually not want to see some of that. Just like you might you're, you might not have needed your parents to hear everything you said on the back of the school bus or walking home. Okay, so this this is actually makes sense for the next question, which is how do you know if they have or how can you avoid their having a fake account? I think that this is, you know, something that we can expand from what you were talking about earlier about kind of getting to a place where you aren't driving kids to create fake accounts, but also what are they seeking to get out of that fake account? Yeah, I think a fake account is actually probably not even an exactly what I would call it now, because when I talk to a lot of the kids that I've done research with in the last few years for growing up in public, they talked about having a spam account on Instagram or on other places, but right. especially Instagram. And that's just for their close friends. And it's not that that's a fake account. The other account, they call it their main, is the real account. It's real. It's just they want to have a place to sort of have an ongoing, more free range, more funny, more in-joke kind of conversation with their close friends. And if you think about your own relationship to texting, 
you probably, you know, post differently on your LinkedIn page, which would be like your front and center professional page or GitHub or whatever you use for that versus, or like your Twitter versus your more private, you know, group text with your three besties. So if your kid is carving out those different lanes for him or herself, I would actually be supportive of that because that suggests that they're recognizing the concept of reputation, recognizing different scope of audience for different things. And that does not mean that the conversation with the three besties is something sinister. They may not want you to read it, but that doesn't mean they're using that space to buy drugs, you know, send nudes, like all the things that give us real nightmares as parents. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying talking to your three besties <laughs> and wanting to have intimate conversations and and maybe, you know, share more personal things does not mean you're doing any of those things. And Absolutely. if I want to go do some of those things, I could I could go do them on a completely different app or I could have an app on a friend's phone or whatever. Or I could do them like in plain sight and parents could still miss it. I mean, I've had parents find out that their kid had a whole second device that they're they didn't know about because they left an old device moldering in a drawer and their kid got it running on Wi-Fi and were using it to do all kinds of things. So I also think like, don't be too complacent. <laughs> I mean, I guess I would say if you think the main account doesn't have any posts and yet you see your kid online all the time, I would be curious. But you could ask if they have other accounts just to talk to their close friends. And that doesn't necessarily mean sinister and no good because developmentally kids should be having conversations with their friends that are not mom or dad approved. I guess it's good that the way this question was phrased was using fake account, because I think that probably originated from Finstagram and like our thinking, these are, these are false accounts of some kind, but they're just not necessarily approved accounts. (laughs) It's not even that they're not approved. It's just that they're using them in a, with a smaller scope in many cases. I mean, I guess if you're saying it's not their first name and their last name. Right, right. Yeah. And oh, so that's, and, and, and tying things to your identity. And one thing I would say to kids though, about that is you are always you on the internet. There's all kinds of ways for people to find out who's post something. So rather than tell kids, you know, don't post that because you'll get caught. I would talk about always represent yourself in your best character, who you are, right? Because nothing is truly anonymous. And I, I do think that's important for kids to know, even if we're not tracking them, someone can see that. And it's good for them to know that a friend might leave their phone, you know, on the kitchen table and their parent might see it. And for younger kids, somebody's parent is certainly on that group text, you know, probably downloading the transcript. And if someone gets in trouble for something that happens on the group text, it's going to the principal's office. So like kids should know that they don't have absolute privacy in these spaces, even if you are not the person tracking it. By the way, I think that that's another really important thing to say to kids. And, and it's, again, it's not in the context of a looming threat. It's just privacy from your parent is the least of your problems when it comes to this stuff. So, cause that you can have an open conversation about, look, I'm, I'm going to have your password. I'm going to be able to check periodically. This is not something I'm going to do just for funsies. This is probably just a check-in, but regardless, it's online. It just is. So what you're putting out there is available in some way, shape or form. And that's just something we all need to be aware of myself included. A hundred percent. All right, let's do one more and then we will save the rest. Okay. So this question is one of those questions where the answer is probably not super satisfying, but I think it's so on people's minds. I'm going to ask it, which is at what age specifically for girls, do you recommend allowing social media and would it be different 
if you had boys? I think that's a really tough question because there is actually research on differential vulnerability of kids at certain ages. And we know that girls are vulnerable a little bit younger to some of the potential harms of social and boys a little bit older. But I still think you have to look at your individual kid. And just like we put all kids in you know, middle school at the same time, even though boys and girls are at a different place developmentally at that age, and we, we don't I, I mean, obviously you can choose a single gender school for your kid, but anyway, not all kids that even identify on the gender binary. So I think it's just complicated. You have to really look at your kid. I mean, bottom line, if your kid is vulnerable on the comparison front, if your kid is extra vulnerable to feeling excluded, I mean, all kids compare, all kids can feel excluded. Social media, it, it's the price of the ticket. You will sometimes feel excluded. If you have a kid who is exquisitely wired to feel excluded, or has a friend group. And honestly, it, it may be some of the more social kids who have the friend groups where like you're very in and out and there's a lot going on. If you have a kid who's more to the social periphery and has two or three good friends, they may ride out those years with a little bit less pain of exclusion because they're less focused on those ins and outs and they have their couple of good friends, right? So you may feel like, you know, worried because there's vulnerability to having fewer friends, right? Because, you know, what if that one friend was away or whatever, or isn't in any of your classes next year? But the reality that I've seen is that the kids at the social center, boys and girls, experience more around exclusion sometimes. And some of them are very hardy with it and very resilient with it. And it doesn't phase them that much. But we want to give all kids some strategies. And the strategies that come from kids, when I interview kids and, and do workshops with kids, they'll tell me the things they do. So I always start those workshops with like, what do you do when you're feeling left out? What can you do to feel better when you're feeling left out? And a lot of kids will say things like, I can hang out with my pet. I can hang out with a friend not from the group at school. Like maybe I have a neighborhood friend or a friend from religious school or a friend from an activity. I can reach out and make a plan that makes me have something to look forward to. I can hang out with my siblings or my parents. That's usually lower on the list for tweens and teens, but it's often on the list. And this is an age where I think we do want to accept being the B plan for our kids. If there's like a cool Saturday night thing that your kid's not part of, maybe you graciously will watch that thing that they love you know, like for me, it would be, you know, a show my kid likes and maybe I am not a huge fan of it, but I'm like, oh yeah, I'd love to do that Saturday night. I, this is the only time I think where it would be okay to have a relationship where you accept graciously being the B plan would be with your teenager, right? If that was your partner or your best friend, I'd be like, no, don't be the B plan. With your teenager, I think you want to go there and be that B plan and, and, and encourage them to put away their phone. And that's girls or boys. I think girls may get there earlier you may see girls feeling left out at 11 and 12 with posts and group texts, and you may see that come a little later for boys, but that's not necessarily a reason to delay. I think all of us are thinking right now hard about the right age. You know, 13 is certainly not the perfect age, and 13 is when a lot of these apps theoretically are allowed, right? The apps are mm -hmm. not for th under 13. So your Discord, your TikTok, mm -hmm. your you know, Instagram, your Snapchat, all of these are 13 and up. That's because of a law that's about who can be advertised and who to and, and data that has nothing to do with development. No one says 13 is the perfect age to enter the sharing, comparing maelstrom of social media because that'll be great because being 13 right. ain't hard enough. So right. why don't you throw in a little bit of like location sharing on Snapchat and see how it makes you feel, right? Nobody's saying that. And so it's important to look at your kid. And I would frankly start with just texting for any kid, boy or girl, and work your way from there. I will also say that in some boy social worlds that are more gaming oriented, and again, I don't want to generalize too much because you got your girl gamers too, 
But if you've got a boy where most of the social scene is about gaming, they may not even want to do social media. They may want to go on Discord, but not join like Instagram or something. And I would take Discord or that Roblox hangout or wherever they're doing their gaming as seriously in terms of mentorship as I would with Instagram, Snapchat, or TikTok. All of these places are places where the social conflicts play out and kids need strategies to deal with them. All of them are places where kids should take a break at night and get some sleep. And there is no perfect time to do this for boys or girls. You know, the advantages of a younger kid might be they're going to be more compliant with parent expectations. But I certainly, I hear the people who are like, wait until eighth, but I'm going to say it. And I have an eighth grader who just finished eighth grade who I love dearly and I love all of his friends. And I'm going to still say that eighth grade is a low point for many kids in their judgment for their entire life. Like think about the worst thing you ever said to somebody. You might've said it in eighth grade, right? And so if you're saying that's the perfect age for a phone, I'm going to push back a little and say, maybe, maybe not, (laughs) right? Like maybe for your kid, but I don't know. I do think, you know, the, the waiting until eighth grade has somehow got this time period into people's minds. But, and I think that this question, my, my guess is for those of you who don't know, there was a recent study on sort of the more vulnerable ages for social media and it found, I'm like going to oversimplify this, but that I think it was 11 to 13 is sort of the most vulnerable for girls and it's 14 or 15 for boys. And so take that as you will, but to your point, you really have to look at the individual and all of the underlying skills that are necessary to be able to navigate this and the energy that you have <laughs> to and the amount of time too like it's one it's one thing to green light instagram for your 13 or your 12 or whatever even though 12 is technically under the you know and and let them spend you know 20 minutes a day on it it's another thing if they're on it for 20 hours a week you know or or 3 hours a day and so there is a differential amount of importance that's going to place if you have some unplugged time built into your kid's life and you make sure they have also other sources of self-esteem. I think that's really important. The kids need to be helpful around the house. They need to be helpful in the community. They need to take care of themselves. And so, because those likes are not going to give them everything they need in terms of feeling good about themselves. And that's true at 12 and it's true at 48. So there's so much more that we can talk about and we're going to speak again soon. So hope this helps people get a little bit of grounding in the context of all of the questions that we have, because this is not our native tongue. It just isn't. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.